I'm Indy Nidell, and this is the Great War Podcast, where we talk to people like historians and writers and scholars of the First World War to quite simply flesh out our work on the First World War. And t with me today is John Ridge, and John's doing something very interesting. Uh, he's doing, he's been writing about medievalism and its connection with the First World War. Now, before we get into that, can you say a bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do? Sure. Well, my name is John Ridge, and I live in the state of Kentucky of the United States of America. And I recently have graduated from Murray State University with a master's in history. And part of that uh, graduate coursework included um, writing a paper about a... Um, a First World War topic, since that was one of the classes I took. So I decided to choose the topic of medievalism during the First World War. Now that's quite interesting, because uh, it leads to the immediate question, how and why did you decide to write a paper on medievalism in the First World War? It seems to me that it wouldn't be something that would just leap to the fore of your mind right off. Or maybe it did. No, that's a good question. Um, admittedly, and sort of embarrassingly, I suppose, since this is, you know, the Great War Channel, um, I wasn't really too interested in the First World War at the time, and uh, since this was, since the uh, requirements was to focus on that conflict in particular in the World Wars class, I decided to choose uh, medievalism because I had, I think I had heard of at least a couple of books that covered the topic, and um, I decided to go forth with that sort of study. So I could basically fulfill the requirement of having a final paper for um, that covered a First World War topic. And I did want to get into it a little bit more because it sort of intrigued me personally. So, Well, you know, what's interesting is just my own personal situation, since I am the writer and the host of The Great War, but I studied medieval and Renaissance European history in university. So this, of course, is a very interesting topic for me particularly to talk to you about it, who's dug into it, which is something I've never done, even though it's my background and my now, but I haven't put them together, you know? Were you surprised how much influence there was, well, we'll get to was or was not, how much influ influence there was medievalism on the First World War? Oh, uh, well, I don't think I was uh, shocked, but I did, I believe I did know that there was at least a little bit going on because, I mean, it is... A very influential period in um, it to uh, European history as a whole, of course. And um, I do remember from some previous either personal study or classes that um, we had gone over some posters at least, and I did notice there were some uh, definitely medieval themes that were covered in um, whether you have to buy war bonds or whether it was to um, drive rec recruitment or whether they were just trying to keep uh, national morale high. And that, and we're going to talk about those individually. I'm just thinking, you know, if I think of medieval influence on the First World War, for me, the very first thing that would come to mind for me, having not written the paper and stuff, um, would be just the physical stuff, like, you know, like you had a destruction of a lot of medieval architecture in, in, in Belgium and France. Um, can you, well, actually, I'll tell you what, we'll get back to that. What I should do first, let's uh, walk through the paper a little. Can you maybe outline your paper and your findings briefly, or, or not briefly, to our listeners out there? Hi, listeners. Certainly, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what I would like to do. Um, okay, so 
I think it'd be best to start out with a basic definition of medievalism so everyone can uh, understand exactly what's being discussed here. So um, starting out in the introduction, I talk about how medievalism is essentially the ongoing prevalence, impact, and memory of medieval European culture into subsequent centuries. And since this is a paper on the First World War, or excuse me, First World War, um, we see prominence of this in the 20th century. And then I argue that medievalism had um, incredible influence in the First World War, particularly in regards to medieval architecture, propaganda, and how individuals viewed warfare in general. So my first main point, uh, like you um, mentioned beforehand, was the influence of medieval architecture. And that, of course, is seen prominently in the, uh, the German destruction of uh, medieval sites in uh, Belgium and France. And, um, you know, to the German army, they mostly saw this as uh, pacification and uh, part of military operations because you didn't want to you didn't want to have a possible resistance uh, firing on your own troops. And unfortunately, this um, this did give them a bad image to um, Western press. And they used this as a, an example of German barbarity and um, how they were uh, essentially uncivilized and how they were an enemy that needed to be stopped. And I saw a lot of evidence in uh, newspapers of the day of this opinion. Okay. Um, well, we, you know, I mean, I, you know, particularly in, you know, during the actual, the rape of Belgium, like in the actual invasion in August. Now, did that sort of destruction... Because, um, you know, we covered that during the invasion. But I don't know that I've read very much about if that sort of thing, the destruction of actual medieval buildings and architecture things and churches, if that was continuing early in 1915, 16, 17 on the Western Front. I'd find that interesting to know, which I don't actually know. Um, af once the invasions, once it was a pacified nation, did that continue? Honestly, I did not look into that, but I do know that... Um it seemed like a general trend of the of the um, of the drive to the point where they seemed on the stalemate of the Western Front. I believe once that set in, that's I would hazard to say that because I know there was Belgium, and then there was. Um, it seemed like there was a particular instance in Reims, France, where there was um, where there was the cathedral there, and they thought it was a French um, artillery observation post. So that was immediately. A target because of that purpose. Okay, and so when you start there, then where do you move on from there? Sure. Um, well, once I cover that point, I move on to my second point, which is um, examining propaganda of the time and the use of medieval themes in that. And uh, one of the a key theme that I noticed was the use of Saint George and the Dragon, and that was used by. Um, the British, uh, the Germans, and Austro-Hungary, it seemed. And that was used to draw recruits and um, encourage people to buy war bonds and etc. Now, why do you think that all of them would use uh, St. George? I mean, George, I traditionally associate with England as the patron saint of England. Uh, it's interesting that, that both of the uh, Central European Central Powers would choose that as well. Was it more just the imagery, just the, you know, the old national imagery from, from before? Or why George for Germany and Austria-Hungary? 
Well, um, the way I'd like to explain this is, um, you know, you're absolutely correct in St. George being the patron saint of England. And I know this is a question a lot of uh, viewers might have, but I would like to point out that um, we should remember that uh, Europe was a, at least a nominally Christian nation or excuse me, continent for a, a long expanse of time. And um, of course, in the medieval period, um, I guess what was essentially Catholicism unite had a sense of at least culturally uniting um, this vast uh, swathe of landmass. And of course, we see that played out in the Crusades as well, that you have all these um, political entities gathering military forces in order to um, basically fight a generalized other in the form of the um, uh, Muslim Middle Eastern powers that had seized Jerusalem and holy sites in the Middle East. It's interesting because just a few weeks ago we talked about when the British uh, took retook Lida about a hundred years ago, three four weeks ago. I don't remember exactly which is where uh, the British took the story. Uh, the English took the story of Saint George home from. Yes, so exactly. Yeah, we see that now. Yeah, that must have been in the papers. Hey, look, we got we got George back. Great. <laughs> um, now that's and it's funny. I didn't think of that. That of course you had before the Reformation and before Henry, you know, creating the Church of England. Of course you had a lot more unity of of saints and a purpose. Sure, they'd be a lot more. They'd be in a lot of mutual histories. That's very interesting. That's good for me to know. I didn't stop to think. Essentially, it would be um, you know everyone shared this same religion. It wasn't just direct. It wasn't like locked into any certain political uh, scheme. Yeah. Now, okay, now that's, so we get the, we've seen the destruction of the physical medieval things. We've seen medieval imagery prevalent in the propaganda of the war. So where do you go from there? Not only were there posters, but there was also um, a a medieval tradition actually carried forth into um, the time of the First World War that started in Austria, and that included um, uh, the use of nail statues. Yeah, so um, this was, I believe this was used in medieval times to, um, I don't know, I think it was like drive away evil spirits or something. I don't know, I'm not quite sure on that. But they had their own unique purpose in medieval times for that. And that was carried into the time of the First World War in sort of a um, way to raise money for um, certain war-related issues. So, for example... Um, I believe one of these statues was used to help out the families of fallen soldiers. And this practice carried over to Germany as well. And um, there's this there's this incredibly like large statue of Hindenburg that they had in central Berlin that people had just studded with nails that they after they had paid their contribution that you'd tap a nail into. And then not only that, but... Um, you know, there was a fusion of Hindenburg with the medieval. So you'd have like Hindenburg, the Teutonic Knight, which is sort of amusing that people would uh, contribute a nail to. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because um, um, I had a, have a book that I haven't used much in the last year or so with the research for the show. But it's about the German, just the German high command during the war. And it has a whole section on the nail statues and stuff. And I always thought it'd be a really good special. We just haven't gotten around to doing it because there have too many other things to do specials on. Um, we did mention the Hindenburg thing in the Hindenburg special, right, Flo? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I think that's fascinating. That, and you could raise a ton of money. I mean, thinking about, you know, that 
it kind of put like American war bonds to shame sometimes how quickly they could raise the money, you know, with the, the nail statues. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's, I, I, and again, this is nice to hear you put this together for me, all these little different threads and stuff. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of interesting, this project, because you don't really cover um, one large chunk of the First World War, if that makes sense. You cover little tiny pieces and then draw it all together into a topic area. All right. No, but that's, uh, I would love to get hold of some of those original ones. I'm sure they cost a decent, decent penny, but that would be nice to have one, especially like one of the, some of the, some of the Hindenburg souvenirs from the way it'd be really nice to have like the jam jars, like a, a Hindenburg jam jar would be great. It would be, yeah, it would go great with my tank handbag from Britain, you know. Yeah, but that's, you know, everything was tanks, tanks, tanks after Cambrai, you know, all kinds of merchandise. It was like a Star Wars movie, basically, but except just tanks. Um, okay, uh, so where are we now? Okay, that's, that's it, imagery and propaganda. And, yeah? Uh, my last, my third and last point was that uh, medievalism, of course, uh, influenced how certain individuals viewed the First World War and their, um, their own experiences in the conflict. So one of the first things that I noticed was um, that uh, this influenced how people would describe certain events happening around them and sort of uh, the people that they saw and what have you. So um, I looked at sources like that of, um, well, the part that I could access of Louis Bartas and uh, uh, remark, remark who had written All Quiet on the Western Front. And they had described people as, you know, looking like uh, knights per se. And I think Louis Bartas even talked about um, they were out on patrol or something. And he thought how foolish it was that they seemed like they're trying to recreate the Battle of Cressy. And, you know, s small little lines like that. And, oh, a very significant one was um, Hindenburg when he was um, around the time of the Battle of Tannenberg in 1914. So, um, you know, Tannenberg, of course, took place around um, Prussia or so. And that, and that was um, Hindenburg um, outmaneuvering the Tsarist uh, Russian army and inflicting a large defeat on them. And it's very significant to medievalism, actually, because the evidence that I looked at, it seemed that he um, that he saw this as sort of revenge against uh, Slavic forces, if you will, from the Battle of uh, Tannenberg in 1410, where they were defeated. Well, that's a great PR coup, not just a, not just a military victory. I mean, and it wasn't just Hindenburg. I mean, his whole command was willing to play that up. That's, that's true. That's great. And of course, Tannenberg, it didn't need to be called the Battle of Tannenberg. Right, yeah, there was, there was a number of um, uh, the sources I looked at, or the source material I looked at, they could have chose a number of names, but they chose Tannenberg because, you know, it was the righteous uh, getting back at the Slavs, if you will. And it's funny because uh, we saw, uh, even during the like invasion of Serbia, when the central powers, the, the, the time they, got, they did it right, the time it wasn't just Austria-Hungary, and they actually uh, took over Serbia. There a lot of the battles, a lot, you know, a lot of the Serbs were, you know, were casting back their minds back to their great medieval victories, their victories back in the 1300s and stuff. And this was a continuation of the great Serbian culture from back then, which is exactly the same as what the Germans were doing with 
Tannenberg. Um, so it's nice that you see that with nice, and maybe that's not the word, but you see that with, with not one, but multiple of the warring nations, you know, and that's quite interesting. Yeah. And also, um, um, not only did this influence perceptions, but it also influenced some of the ways in how soldiers tried to adapt to trench warfare that I found. So one of the first obvious examples was, um, I guess, the reintroduction of armor into combat. You know, we see the introduction of uh, combat helmets in order to um, uh, protect soldier heads and, of course, to uh, keep... Uh, or lower the impact of uh, shell shrapnel and whatnot. And we even see this extend to, you know, the one that I can think of at the top of my head is the full, uh, like, German trench sniper armor, where you have the helmet and the, uh, the thickened uh, plate, the head plate that you could attach to it and the lobstered chest. Uh, and um, not only to armor, but in the way of... Uh, soldiers began to develop trench clubs and maces. So, of course, you know, trench warfare is dominated by machine guns, rifles, gas, all these uh, seemingly modern implements. But, of course, once you got face-to-face, -face, you'd have to have specialized weapons in order to um, neutralize enemies that um, might not be that way, that... Um, have some not very high-tech ways of dealing with that. So soldiers um, came up with their own trench maces, and I believe some of them were even manufactured for them. So regardless, they have. Yeah, you've seen some of the, uh, we've seen a bunch of the stuff that people would make, and it was not pretty. And it can really show you how not pretty medieval fighting must have been. You know, you like to think of knights and honor and stuff, but let's face it, some of those big battles must have been just unbelievably nasty and close up. And of course, this carried over to World War I, strangely enough. And one of the examples that um, I looked at Imperial War Museum uh, artifacts for this, and one that really stuck out to me was, um, I'm not quite sure what it looks like now, but um, there's an example where it was a, a mace, of course, but it had a coiled spring as sort of the shaft of the mace. And I thought that this looked like, um, like in this artifact was a fusion of medieval style weaponry with modern machine parts, which was interesting. Now, um, what does the medieval influence on the First World War tell you about that era and its culture? Of course, a lot of people um, saw the First World War as this great events era of upheaval of on multiple levels, whether it was like societal, political, it seemed like Europe had just shaken itself apart. And um, one of the things that I think that made medieval culture appealing was that it was a, um, a time period that had um, relatively a standard uh, bookends, if you will. It was an era that had ended and there were certain themes and um, uh, events that were like earmarked as medieval. And that sort of seems set in stone, uh, pun partially intended, because of course there was architecture that uh, 
was still around in Europe and is still there today that um, obviously marks that medieval, the medieval era had occurred there. And I think that because of it being some sort of source of um, a stable source of uh, inspiration and values that that made it appealing to access in a time of uh, great upheaval in Europe. So this would be what we use in modern times, like framing, to actually frame the the, the slaughter. I, I suppose so, yeah. At least put it in some sort of um, understandable context or way to process things that were happening at the time or after things had gone on. But of course, afterwards you have, um, you know, this is just one of the ways. Now, I know, I'm aware that after the war you had all sorts of, uh, like an explosion of art and things that were just like nothing before because how in the world do you express these horrific things that had happened? So I do admit that it is just one way of handling things. Yeah, well, uh, many people just went right back to the beginning with the Dadaists and everything. And that's, yeah, sure. And what's also interesting is you have countries like the German Empire and Italy which were themselves new countries, relatively new countries. They'd only been around for 40 years or so, 40, 50 years. Although parts of them, sure, parts of them had traditions going, well, all of them had traditions going back to the Middle, Middle, Middle Ages, medieval period. But those would not be a uniform thing. Sure, the Bavarians had different medieval traditions that still existed than the Prussians did, for example. And Italy had all the different bits. And it's interesting to use your medieval propaganda to convince you that, no, 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 you're fighting for a country that's actually been around for a thousand years, you know, even though it hasn't been around for a thousand years. So, I mean, I think the most... A uh, prevalent aspect of that, that uh, something that had continued was, of course, the um, the system of the monarchy and the royal family itself. Because even though it had experienced changes, it still existed in some form or another in a lot of these places. You know, the House of Hohenzollern of um, just about all of them, actually, Germany and Habsburg. Well, um, Romanov technically began early modern. I think I think that was 1600s, but still it was pretty it's pretty close to the medieval era and a lot of these did take place in or come to power in the medieval. Well, even the monarchy itself, even if it was perhaps less more symbolic in than than actually active in say Britain compared to Russia or or Austria-Hungary, you still had a ruling system that had been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay, France actually had a you know basic democracy without a king or a queen, but they were pretty unique for Europe. Actually, you know, I mean, other than the states, you, you know, kings everywhere. Even if they maybe in some places they didn't have any real power, you still had them. You still had that connection. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It still existed as a system, but you know, some of these families themselves did come out of this period as well. So. Yeah, of course. I mean, well, think about yeah, how far back the Habsburgs and the Ottoman Empire go. Well, the Habsburgs go further, but the Ottoman Empire still, I mean, and especially from those humble beginnings to take Constantinople, the untakeable city, and to hold it, you know, for the next 450 years. Uh, and yeah, and still, that's, yeah, you can really work that up as good PR, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Now, what 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 does the future hold for you? I mean, are you will you continue exploring things like this? Or are you going to do some completely unrelated history, or are you, you going to trek to Antarctica? Um, well, all those might be a possibility. You never know what's going to happen. Um, all right. <laughs> um, but with the historical studies aspect, um, 
I'm honestly not exactly sure. They're, I'm interested in all sorts of periods of history, of course, but I feel like I've narrowed it to, or possibly narrowed it to two uh, areas. Um, you know, more modern things um, are definitely more manageable for me because, um, you know, there's more source material to access and um, more of it survives, of course. And um, essentially, if you go into any sort of uh, medieval studies, it's basically uh, guaranteed that you have to learn Latin. You know, there's a lot of church documents and uh, government documents that are written in Latin. And I've done, um, well, I haven't really done any uh, work with Latin language sources, but I did a, I actually did a project on the War of the Roses and just dealing with, uh, what was it, Middle English? Middle English was like a nightmare. It was like somebody had tried to, it's like a child had written these documents <laughs> with, with the way it was spelled. And it was, it was just, you know, almost gave me a headache. So, I mean, medieval interests me, but I don't know if I'll go forth with it or not. When, um, when I was growing up, I grew up in Houston, right? And when I was in, uh, in sixth and seventh grade, my school required you to take Latin, two years of Latin. You didn't do a foreign language till ninth grade. The sixth, seventh grade had to take two years of Latin. It was the last school in Texas that actually required you to take Latin. I hated wow. it. I hated it. <laughs> Our books were a series of books called Ecce Romani. Look, Romans. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Uh, but, you know, it come, certainly come in handy when I started studying uh, medieval and, and Renaissance European history. In fact, one thing, interestingly enough, I, uh, when I was working on my thesis, which had to do with the Black Death, uh, I was going through cathedral archives um, at the Archdiocese uh, in Canterbury. I had gotten a grant to do some research there. And I, couldn't, I, needed, I needed someone to help me with translate. I couldn't read anything. But uh, I was looking the numbers of people that had died of specific illnesses in specific years. And 1348, two people in the diocese there died of planet I have no idea what planet <laughs> is. I will probably never know what planet is, but I know that two unfortunate people in England died of planet in 1348. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know what that could be unless, I don't know, they were like sinkhole. I, I, you know, I genuinely don't... have no idea. I mean, we could make a ton of really good guesses, but... You know, and then the uh, the people from the, the the people from the archdiocese, they had no idea either. They said they always find things people died of. They have no idea what it actually means, which I thought that's was actually cool. that's actually paper territory. Like I bet you could write a whole historical or at least journal paper just debating what that could possibly mean if you go into like language and meaning and all sorts of that is a things. great idea because you could do that worldwide you know i mean you just yeah. have to get into archives and and find no i have no idea what this guy died from what could that possibly be so, right no that's very interesting oh. so maybe in the future we can do that together huh yeah sure thing all right if i learn latin maybe <laughs> oh yeah and i'll have to brush up because again it was only two years and i was like 11 and 12 years old i remember all the endings well, uh, John, can people can people read your work? Can people read the paper? Is there any access? Uh, the World War, uh, the medievalism paper. I could send that to you, and you could drop it as a link if you wish. I suppose. Yeah. Or I could. Um, is there any other way that you would suggest to make that uh, accessible? Flo and I are both cool with that. I mean, a lot of people will see it up there. I mean, it's, it'd be nice because, I mean, if you're up for that, because a lot of people, I'm sure, will read it because it'd be quite interesting. Continuing with the question of what I do plan to do is 
it's probably more likely that I'll do more modern things. Uh, for example, um, my master's thesis actually was about pirates. So that covered the era of 1680 to about 1760. And, um, well, it's called To Stand Against the Company, a study of the British Honorable East India Company and piracy in the Indian Ocean world circa 1680 to 1760. And I um, examine how piracy was such a, a blight to the East India Company and operations in the Indian Ocean and how that basically encouraged them to gather enough military force in order to um, uh, clamp down on those pirates and how piracy didn't just serve as a, um, as a hindrance to economic activity, but it also um, hindered diplomatic and uh, political operations of the company and even influenced, uh, had some social effects in the Indian Ocean region. And you can check that out on uh, Murray State Digital Commons, if you wish. Okay, well, that's great. I, I, I would totally check that out. All right, well, thank you very much, John Ridge. That was fascinating. And you guys, again, you'll be able to see, I guess, the day that this comes out, this podcast comes out. Um, you can actually read the paper. And I look forward to reading the Pirates thing again. And please do not forget to subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes as well, especially if it's a good one. I mean, really, especially if it's a good one, you know, because it, it, they warm the cockles of my heart to read them. Uh, John, thank you very much for taking time out to be here. Well, thank you for having me. It was good talking to you. Okay, well, that is it for now. And as always, we will see you soon.